Hello and welcome to the 24th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. This month on our Inspiring Women series, we have the pleasure of talking with entrepreneur and Forbes 30 Under 30, Abigail Selden. She's the CEO of the Selden Herring Smith Foundation and founder of Swift Students. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ann. Pleasure. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you are having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Abby, would you like to start? Well, it's 11 a.m. in the States, and I've already had one Diet Coke, and so now I'm on to water for a little bit. I forgot about your love of Diet Coke. Oh, yes. <laughs> Still going Dedicated. strong. Dedicated. Dedicated. If only we had them as a sponsor. You know, what are you going to do? But yeah, yeah, cool. Well, hey, would you like to kind of give the listeners and viewers sort of an idea of how we reconnected and how we know each other, you know, just a bit of background? Sure. So I think you and I first met at Oxford as doctoral students. We did. Uh, in our one and only required class, that seminar. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and then became friends then and stayed in touch through field work, through, through writing up, and then I think when I moved to Hong Kong, um, we fell out of touch. And then it was really fortunate for me. You reached out, I guess, by LinkedIn, what, you know, six months ago. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, because I was like, oh, Abby, I haven't talked to her in ages. Good old shark eyes. How's she (laughs) doing? (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's great. And I've been, you know, kind of in the sidelines, sort of seeing the sort of work you've been doing, not in a stalkery sort of way, but... Um, one of the things that I've always found really inspiring about the work that you do is you, you're you an innovator and it seems like you're always looking for the next interesting project. And I guess because things are changing for a lot of people in the world right now in terms of career paths and thinking about where they might be better placed or, you know, if you've been stuck in a job or whatever, and it's not working out, that maybe this might be a chance for you to take a risk. Um, I'd just be curious, what made you decide from, you know, transitioning? Because you were initially a student in higher education, and then you transitioned to working in business to better higher education. And I just want to know, like, how did that come about? And how did you develop your own path, so to speak? I think, you know, as for most people, it was a bit of an accident. I was working on my doctoral dissertation, And I found it a little boring. And I think that that's probably not a terribly unique situation. Um, And, but my background had been working on large projects with teams. And so as I was working on it and and focused on more social impact work um, prior to working on the doctorate. And so as I was working on it, I just kept circling back to who is this going to help? And I couldn't come up with an answer other than me as the next step to my career. And for something that I wasn't really enjoying all that much, that didn't provide the level of incentive really needed to complete your doctorate. And so, at least for me to complete my doctorate. And so, I was looking around for other projects to do, other things to do to kind of keep me engaged. And my then boyfriend, now husband, and I were starting to bat around this idea of college cost transparency. And the there'd been new regulations passed as part of the Higher Education Act of 2008. And we had learned about that from his mother, who's a college, who was a college president. And those regulations required all colleges and universities to post 
what was called a net price calculator on their website, basically a widget that would let students or prospective students put in their personal financial information to get back an estimate of what their out-of-pocket cost would be to attend that school. And in the United States, where financial aid packages very widely schooled school, um, this was a huge consumer transparency effort. But of course, like many government-required consumer transparency efforts, it got mired in red tape. People put it on disclosure pages on the net that folks don't often read. And so we were batting around the idea of could we make a kayak kayak.com for college financial aid. And so we started working on that project, both of us part-time. He was working full-time at his job. I was still pushing ahead on the doctorate. And as time went on, that project got traction and became more and more engaging. And my doctoral write-up remained my doctoral write-up. And so as we got increased traction on college, what became College Abacus, I decided I was going to put the doctorate to the side and, you know, to some extent never looked back. Mm, No, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think um, there's quite a lot of people who are a bit afraid to sort of take that leap. You know, they have this idea, they want to test it out, but they're afraid to go in with both feet wet, right? Um, I I know from personal experience, uh, there's a project I'm working on, I'm trying to finish my book, but... You know, it's that whole thing of you want this other thing to really go through, but given the climate, middle of a pandemic, yada, 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 there's always that sort of fear there. And so I'm just curious, what sort of how, what did you, what was sort of the impetus that made you go, no, I'm going to just try this out, see what happens, and we'll just cross our fingers? So it's really interesting because, you know, that question reminds me of a panel that I sat on. Um, around entrepreneurship and investment probably five years ago. And I was the only person on that panel who didn't advocate that when you start a new venture, you should quit your existing job and put your all into it. Mm. Um, I think that there are some people who are very privileged who can do that, and that's good for them. But part of, I think, innovating is recognizing that every idea is not a good one. And you're going to need to iterate to get to what whatever the right answer is going to be for you, for your project, for your product. And in academia, you know, people write and rewrite all the time and maybe don't think of it as iterating it. But when you're building anything, you, you write and rewrite. You, you know, you conceive and you reconceive and you iterate. And so one of the things that I always think about is sort of qualified risk-taking. So college abacus was a risk, but it was in the initial stages before it got traction, primarily a risk of my time. You know, I didn't leave my doctoral program. I didn't forfeit my Rhodes Scholarship. I kept doing those things, maybe not a thousand hours a week, but, you know, I kept making pace on those. And then I was spending a lot of discretionary time trying to figure out whether this college abacus thing was going to work and whether it was going to go anywhere. And Then I set some benchmarks for, okay, well, what would it need to do for me to leave my doctorate? You know, how, what, what kind what would success look like for me to Mm. be willing to leave the doctoral program to formally suspend candidacy? And then as I moved on to another fellowship, you know, what would I need to believe about college abacus? What metrics would we need to hit for me not to look for a different job after this fellowship ends? And so I was, you know, so starting a new company is definitely a risk, but 
in the beginning, it was just a risk of my time. And then it was a risk of a little bit of time and money. And after that, once we had hit some basic benchmarks that I thought were compelling, that my then husband thought were compelling, then it became something where I was willing to put you know, more of my career into it and yeah. to take more professional risk. And I think that that's not advice that we give very often, you know, in the entrepreneurship space, but I know a lot of folks have done that and I highly recommend it because it also, I think, enables you to think more critically about the decisions you're making in your new venture. Because if you've gotten to a do or die standpoint where it's, I'm doing this and only this and for the next three months, if we don't succeed, I'm ruined. That's not really a great place to be in, to be making critical decision-making, to be thinking about how can you make something better? When do you abandon an idea that's not working? And so yeah. I think it's easier to be creative in a place where you can make discards. Yeah. And I think stability is really a big factor. I mean, I know for myself, I have, in working on this venture that I'm trying to develop, I have a baseline. And it's like, okay, what is the baseline that I feel comfortable with that for me would make me feel like this is sustainable? And what would the, be the amount of hours, even just price points? You know, like that's a, an aspect I never fully appreciated. And I realized that I was underselling myself. But I had to learn, as my dad said, you have to eat a few grenades to realize, okay, this, is, this isn't going to work long term. And how do you how do you justify that? And so, you know, sort of getting back to the work that you're doing. So you initially started with College Abacus. And, and then in 2014, you sold College Abacus to EMEC, correct? Uh, ECMC. ECM, my apologies. And then eventually you worked on, you transitioned onto a new project called Swift Students. So um, you've talked about how you, what led to the creation of College Abacus. What eventually caused you to transition into this new project, Swift Student? And what is Swift Student? How does it differ from College Abacus? So Swift Student is a free tool that helps students understand that they can ask for additional financial aid and provides free template letters for them to edit online to ask for additional financial aid and communicate their eligibility. So Swift Student... Uh, is one of the primary projects we're sponsoring out of the Selden Herring Smith Foundation. So in 2019, my husband and I decided that we would spin up a small foundation. We were very fortunate to be able to do that. And we were focused on high inflection points, or we saw as, as the option to create inflection points in two topics we cared, two themes we cared about, which were our themes for the last two years, immigration and higher education. And so we do that through three ways. We have a normal grant-making program, like most foundations. Um, we have an internal fellows program, an internal research program, where we work on it, work on or workshop particular ideas that may be too premature or maybe too interdisciplinary or too applied to be able to grant-make on. And then we also partner uh, with external groups to produce new tools and um, or new resources. And Swift Student uh, is a partnership with FormSwift, which is a private company that helps you edit and create PDFs online. And FormSwift was founded by actually a friend of mine from college. And so when we were coming up with the idea for Swift Student, what we really wanted was a corporate partner who already had the tech in place. And so that way this would be primarily a content and coalition issue for the foundation to solve rather than creating long-term technical obligation. Okay, great. 
And um, just sort of one of the things that I think is really interesting. And so Swift student, I noticed you do a lot of collaborations. And I hope I'm using the right word with various organizations. And I was wondering if you could tell us what sort of you know, impact is such an important aspect of the work that you do. And it's something that I really respect because I think a lot of those of us with our previous backgrounds, impact is drastically missing. And I know for myself, that was the sort of final kick in the shorts that I needed in order to sort of look elsewhere. And I was wondering, um, what sort of organizations do you work with or do you, you collaborate with? The Department of Education, for example, in the United States, I know that you've done uh, some work with them. Is that correct? Um, uh, in the previous administration. Okay. Not, okay. Not no, 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 of course not. Not that I'm giving my political views whatsoever. But um, I will say, um, what sort of other projects are you also working on with other collaborative um, efforts? Because I know Getty Images, for example, is is one that you're doing at the moment or you have done recently. Yes. So with Swift Student, we had sort of two kinds of collaborators, if you will. We had Form Swift, who was our technical partner or is our technical partner. And then we partnered with other organizations in higher education. So colleges, associations of colleges, financial aid officer associations. Montgomery College was one of them. Montgomery, Montgomery College was one of Foundation. them, yes. Yeah. And, um, and we worked with those groups to develop the content for Swift Student and also to make sure that that content was what they needed it to be. Is primarily that tool is designed to translate federal regulations for students so that way they could communicate more effectively with financial aid officers. But both financial aid officers and students needed to be bought in that the solution would work for them. And so we had more than 20 focus groups and we had um, actually an open Google Doc with our 20 partner organizations, which they actually helped us line edit all of the text that ended up on the website. So it was truly a joint authorship effort with these groups. And I'm tremendously grateful for you know, their faith and their time to engage with us. Um, so we partnered with you know, a number of groups on that project. Um, our other major external collaboration at the moment is with Getty Images, where we've partnered with them to shoot new stock photos of basically the new college majority. So today, college students in the United States, 40% um, are over 24. 40% um, are also food or housing insecure or both. And 25% um, have a minor child. 10% um, are single moms. You know, the demographics look a lot different from, you know, shiny students sitting in a quad in a circle, um, you know, with homework being their only concern and beautiful backdrops of, you know, livey covered buildings. And, one of the things that we thought was important was that there actually be stock images that represent the true demography of today's students and the challenges that they face. So that way those images could be used not only by folks, you know, making a policy point, but also, you know, in advertising, which, you know, many advertisers used Getty images and iStock images for their content for mainstream news, which also use those services. And so we partnered with them on this new College Majority Series to try to solve that problem. And we have uh, two segments out already, and the remaining two will come out this spring. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I saw quite a few of those Getty images, um, which I thought were really enlightening for me. I mean, I, I felt like I could relate to quite a few of them in terms of those that are having children. And in my case, I did not have a child when I was finishing up my my work. And hats off to those that do. But 
Um, I think it really highlights the fact that there is an assumption, right, that these school structures, and you and I have talked about this at great length, of uh, what is the the idealized student, so to speak, and what is the assumed student is very different than the reality. And I um, think it's really interesting that, um, firstly, Getty Images, I think is it's really great that they were so interested in, in being a part of this initiative. And I'd be curious to know, what was uh, what sort of compelled them to want to say that they wanted to be a part of this project? So getting it, you know, it's I can't speak for them, but I can tell you why we thought that it would be fruitful to approach them. Um, you know, for us, you know, one of the things that I would say even incited the project on our end was Getty has produced a number of repicturing groups um, over the years, and so they've done. Uh, they did a collaboration with Lean In uh, to show women at work and produce hundreds of images uh, to change basically what the options were to show women at work and show women in leadership positions, to show women uh, in the workplace uh, being present and picturing them there. And so diversifying corporate images, things like that. They did a partnership with MuslimGirl.com to show uh, photos of uh, Muslim women in daily life. And so they've done a number of these kinds of collaborations in the re- in recent past. And so reaching out to them as our first choice partner for this, you know, made a lot of sense to us. They had the track record and they have the biggest distribution platform. Mm, that makes sense. Um, I was going to ask you, so what are some of the things you've learned about higher education from the business side that you were unaware of when you were a student? Hmm. An interesting question. Would it help if I gave my view of yeah. what I've learned, maybe, That'd and be great. then then I can we can just see where it goes. So, um, the business side that I'm working on for my own project, which is still very much an ongoing thing, is I noticed that in the study abroad market in the U.S you have a lot of American students that come to the UK and they are drastically unprepared for the educational standards that are expected of them when they come to school here. So the biggest shock that I found from personal experience and then in talking to other American students and teaching those American students was that there is not enough emphasis on writing. Mm -hmm. So you can get away with, we used to call it uh, circles, it's C and Jesus was the answer to everything at our school, but um, you can't get away with multiple choice. There's no such thing as multiple choice. You need to be able to articulate an argument. You need to be able to think outside the box. You need to not be able to write to the professor. And you would have these students who were so used to trying to write to a particular person and hoping that if they were in that, that professor's good graces that they would get a good grade. And then they come to the UK, for example, and the professor doesn't care if you like them or not. They want to know if you answered the question. If you don't answer the question, then you get a bad grade. So I had an instance with a student where, um, after having been through the process, where the student thought that I didn't like her because I gave her basically an F. And Hmm. I said, I didn't give you an F because because of whether or not I like you. You got an F because you plagiarized. And that is what you'd get at Oxford if you plagiarize. That, that's just the way it is. But from this student, the student had been trained to think, well, if I 
show up to class, I'll get participation grade. Well, you don't get participation grade. You are you don't get a bonus at work just because you showed up to work. You have mm-hmm. to do your job. So from my standpoint, what I learned from the business perspective is that there is a gap in the higher education market that needs to be addressed. But institutions, the study abroad institutions that I am wary of, they're looking to they're looking to make sure students fill those places, but they're not thinking about the long-term side effects of those students that eventually go abroad. You know, if we take away, we strip away the pandemic and we strip away COVID, these students are going there to have a good time, but they're not going there for an education. And wouldn't it make more sense that they actually go there and they walk away learning something from it as opposed to walking away from a bunch of mistakes that they've made? And then the other side effect of that is that they end up leaving a reputation that we then can't fix. It's not Mm -hmm. fun going to Europe and being assumed that you're easy. But if that's the reputation that's being left at their doorstep, you can't blame them, can you? Mm -hmm. So at least from my side, it made me think, you know, these are issues that can easily be fixed. But do they even know that this is a problem to begin with? Well, I will say this, you know, I think one of the things that we do see in the U.S. is that there is a real sense that every school is unique and that, and so interoperability agreements and transfer agreements, for example, between schools continue to be a source of great stress. And so, you know, that, that you would see that kind of issue for students going abroad makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I think that, mm. that, you know, in the U.S., we don't really provide a homogenized college experience across different schools anyway. And so... What do you mean by homogenized in that sense? Um, you know, different students, depending on their school or major, will or will not have the kind of writing requirements that you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's not... Um, you know, there's not a lot of essay-based science programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, And yet in STEM, that's becoming more and more prevalent, is that you yeah. do need to have a good good writing abilities. It's not just your math skills. And so yeah. that's another issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah. But that's, but, uh, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, what are some of the factors within higher education that you've learned within the work that you're doing through SWIFT Student and College Abacus that you think need to change, whether that be the widgets that become more accessible to parents or potential students? What are some of the things that you've noticed? Well, you know, for us and for for me for the last 10 years, my primary focus has been transparency and access. So, you know, one of the major barriers to success, I would say, between students, you know, or among students in a in the academy environment in the U.S. is all of the stuff that isn't classroom. You know, there's a lot of logistical management that goes into navigating college financially, you know, in terms of, you know, just the sheer work you need to do to get registered for classes, to, you know, process that paperwork. And it creates barriers to entry that artificially signal skill. So, because what it fundamentally means is that you have a divide. You have students for whom all of that is easy because they have family support and they have resources and they're not the first in their families to go to college. And so what's a registrar? Is it a question that can get answered in their house quickly? Um, And then you have students who can't ask what's a registrar 
And that kind of basic assumes knowledge and the gap that not understanding it leaves behind can lead students to do worse in their classes because it just takes tremendous amount of time and energy and money to make the rest of it work. And so, you know, we have, I think there's a sense that, you know, your college grades reflect your skill or your dedication. And to some extent that's true, but we have this additional issue of these hidden costs, hidden curriculum that are prevalent through the academy and which artificially depress the outcomes and promise of millions of students who are actually working extraordinarily hard in sometimes not very welcoming environments. Yeah, geez. And I think you highlight quite a bit of that. I know that um, the articles I read about the work that you're doing um, at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times really tap into the fact that you have these students, some of them are in their early 20s and they've got, you know, five-year-old kids and then they're trying to figure out how to work at the same time and then you factor in the pandemic and everything else and, and everything comes to a screeching halt. And if stuff isn't available or transparent, you know, that's just one more thing on the load of things. So I'd be curious to know if we could just throttle back a bit to college advocates. When you mm -hmm. initially established that, you received a lot of heat from several universities who were unhappy about the program that you had created. And I wanted to know why that was the case and how did you choose to respond to those challenges? So when I think it's important to remember that time moves very quickly in some fields and in college access and college finance, um, the last 10 years have been an extraordinary turnabout from when I entered the field, the idea that students should be comparing colleges on the basis of price when they decided where to apply was borderline heretical. And versus now where it's an accepted component of the process. And I'm really proud that College Abacus was a contributor and a driver of those conversations you know, fairly early in that period. But when we were raising it in 2012, when we launched our tool, you know, some folks thought we'd landed from Mars. And you know, there's this idea that you would shop ahead of time versus just wait and see what you've got on the other side of the application cycle just seemed I think strange and to some it was a little threatening because they were worried that their numbers would go down in the face of price transparency. And, you know, you see this in any time there's a new price transparency uh, push. You see organizations that have previously had their pricing not be scrutinized and not be compared resist. You know, when Kayak and TripIt launched, the airlines were not happy. When you know, Hotels.com launched and, and that class of websites. The hotels were not particularly happy. Um, right now in the U.S., there's been a fight about surprise medical bills and the ability to compare the cost of procedures across, across different hospitals. Huge lobbying fight ultimately resolved in this most recent bill where now, in fact, comparison of procedures is going to be allowed and enabled. Uh, but you know, we see these fights come to these big industries all the time. And we just happen to be the folks who brought it to higher ed. That's interesting. It's really fascinating. Well, I was going to say before we go, um, what can, you know, listeners and viewers and potential students do to learn more about the services Swift Student and your foundation provide? 
So Swiss Student is available first. Thank you. Um, Swiss Student is available online for free at formswift.com backslash Swift dash student. And that'll be available in our show notes as well. So we'll make sure Wonderful. that's accessible. Um, and our foundation is available. All of the information about our foundation is available at shs.foundation. Perfect. Well, I've got to say, thanks so much, Abby. That's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank you again for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information, as I said, on today's topic will be available in the show notes. In the meantime, we'd like to give a shout out to our new patrons, Lucy, Johanna, and Lo. It's contributions like yours that really help to keep the show going. And if you're watching our show on YouTube, hey, feel free to click the subscribe button below to stay up to date on future episodes. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week. 